Hello and welcome to Social Justice Matters, a podcast from Social Justice Ireland. My name is Colette Bennett and I'm Economic and Social Analyst with Social Justice Ireland. As regular listeners will know by now, we have three different types of podcast. We have our 10-minute lesson series, which provides a brief overview, touching on the main points of a topic that we think our listeners need to know about. We have our seminar series, which is a look back at our seminars and our conferences to listen to some important and interesting contributions from a range of national and international speakers. And then we have our interview series, where we interview a series of experts in a range of different fields. And today is one of those. Today, I am speaking to Dr. Daniel Jolly. Daniel is a British social psychologist. He's an assistant professor in social psychology in the University of Nottingham. And his research is broadly around the area of psychology of conspiracy theories. He has a passion for science communications. He regularly gives public talks. He speaks to journalists and organisations. And he often appears in newspapers, magazines, podcasts such as our own, uh, and so on. Um, He's a really interesting guy. And we talked a lot about disinformation, misinformation, the difference between the two, um, and what we can do to combat that in the age of social media. I hope you enjoy listening as much as I enjoyed having this chat. So Daniel, thank you so much for coming today um, and chatting to me about all of this. I really do appreciate it. It's an absolute pleasure. I'm really excited to join you. Great stuff. So I suppose kicking off for our listeners, um, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and your work? So I obviously came across you and I was looking into the whole area of disinformation and misinformation and a really interesting uh, report that you and some colleagues had written, which we will get to at some point, um, came up. And I just thought, well, here's a man I want to talk to. So can you just give me a little bit of background on yourself, please? So I am a psychologist. I'm a social psychologist, which means I'm interested in us, our attitudes, our beliefs, and how we got to that point. So how others can influence us and us influence them. That's broadly what a social psychologist is. Now, of course, my kind of specific interest is in misinformation and conspiracy beliefs. Now, I'm based at the University of Nottingham currently, and I've I've been researching this area for probably about 10 years. I first came interested as a student. I then did my PhD in the area. I then continued it into my academic career. So in a way, I actually was interested in conspiracy beliefs before they were popular. So before, you know, I mentioned the dreaded C word already, I apologise, COVID, um, that has been... uh, uh, a spotlight on this area, in particular misinformation and conspiracy beliefs with, you know, the dangers being seen in the real world. But I was here before that. I was here <laughs> interested and looking into it. So I, I've been very much thinking about the consequences. What is the harm of this type of rhetoric? And then, which of course naturally has moved into thinking about interventions and how we can seek about change. But broadly, psychologists interested in this area. And just, I suppose, I mean, you, you've mentioned conspiracies there. Um, I suppose that the language has probably evolved a little bit in the last few years around misinformation and disinformation. And even that can be really confusing. Like, what, what is it? What is the difference? And why is it such an issue? So think about mis and disinformation as slightly different things. 
Think about it as the intent behind the sharing of some content that is false. So with misinformation, you may share it, let's say on your social media platform, and you, you as the individual believe it is true. So, you know, it could be about an election, could be about treatment to do with COVID, could be whatever, could be about someone you dis dislike. But you, when you share it, you genuinely believe that it is true and you are just trying to tell everyone else. So, so you're inadvertently misinforming people because it's false, but you don't realise that. Whereas disinformation is different. So you are sharing that content, but you are deliberately being deceptive. You know that it's false. Like maybe you had written it yourself, or you have come aware from other way, from other, other people or other ways, that you know that is just not true. But you share it anyway as a way to deceive. Maybe you've got different intents. Like, for example, you're really trying to other the other group, showcase how the other group are doing bad things. And by sharing this content, it kind of really paints that stereotype of that group doing bad things, for example. But you are sharing it and you know that you're doing that. So, the, so there's a very keen difference. So in a way, when false things come, in, come into existence, potentially the person who very first tweets it or mentions it on TikTok or whatever platform you use, that first person may indeed be doing it on purpose and that is, you know, disinformation. But then when it's shared, that's where it turns into misinformation because the person who's that sharing it, the normal everyday person, arguably, just is just sharing it because they think it's true. And, you know, that then spreads and they're doing it in a way of maybe true intent. that They're trying to help other people. So we've also added to the mix of conspiracy beliefs. That kind of really comes into a lot of category of its own. Because myths and disinformation can be about a group where it's just false. There's nothing sinister going on with that group. We're not saying that, you know, the scientists have covered up COVID or climate change. There's nothing sinister going on. It could just be a false piece of information. Whereas with conspiracy beliefs, it's always got that sinister cover-up element where there's a group of people who are doing secret things behind, for the, behind the scenes for their own self-interest which, you know, could also be mis and disinformation, depends on how you, how you share it, but it is different. So hopefully that kind of helps people imagine in their mind the difference between dis and misinformation. And I would suspect most people fall into the trap of misinformation, that they're not doing it in a way to deceive on purpose, or at least I hope anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this, this hope for society, if it's misinformation rather than rampant disinformation. Well, absolutely. Depends on your listeners. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I mean, I mean we've, we've certainly heard more about it since 2016. So since we had Brexit and we had the run-up to the US presidential elections, for example, and we got great new phrases like fake news and alternative facts and all of that kind of stuff. Um, but you said yourself, you've been interested in this space for the last 10 years or so. So surely it didn't just start with, you know, 2016 and slightly before, but was it much of a problem historically? Well, when I actually, when I first got involved in this area, I would say, oh, you know, I'm working on conspiracy beliefs, misinformation. People's reaction typically would be, oh, that's a bit weird, a bit different. <laughs> like, why would you do that in the talk in terms of here? What impact would you have with that? Like, oh, that's such 
such a niche thing to be involved in. Whereas today I say, oh, you know, I'm interested in the conspiracy beliefs, misinformation, oh, that's an important topic. That is really timely. So that change has really happened in those few years. And as I already mentioned, I do think COVID has had that impact in that area because we could see the consequences of that particular misinformation to do with, let's say, the vaccine or to do with how to treat COVID or to also try and protect yourself from COVID. You can literally see the impact on people's health, which I think has been a bit of a stark change as well. And of course, with COVID-19 impacting the world, that's also quite different in the sense that previous events to do with different outbreaks and doing different critical events can often be quite time specific and to a specific region in the world, which means that only those who are involved are paying attention. So, for example, with Zika, there's a whole host of different conspiracy theories and misinformation around Zika, but it didn't necessarily impact the world all at the same time. So I think that's with COVID in the sense that you got people, general people, but also governments, journalists, all looking at the same issue in the same way and seeing the same effects happening in their countries, which I think has really been a change in, in dynamics. But as you mentioned, of course, these things are not just, you know, born out of the internet in a way, but rather they've been with us since the start of time. I was just looking before before this podcast just to see, can I see any examples of, you know, misinformation from back in history? And I found this piece from, it's called European Seed. And they found that in the mid-1700s, during the height of a rebellion in Great Britain, some people printed fake news suggesting that King George II was ill as a way to destabilise the establishment. And this fake news was picked up by more printers and reputable sources and was actually then spread. It actually made it really difficult to work out truth from fiction. So that's just one example from the 1700s of people, of someone starting disinformation, printing it, then being picked up by other publishers who then also then spread it but of course they believed it so they thought you know it was then turned into misinformation so in a way it's always been there because of course it's part of our psychology and of course i would say that as psychologists <laughs> um i would be guilty i would say that but it's it's part of our assumption that we assume things to be true when we digest information we have this truth bias and you know when we read about something definitely if it aligns with our political values definitely if it presents the other group as doing bad things we're gonna be really motivated to you know say that is true that is absolutely what is happening and then you then distribute that to try and tell other people in your group that look at what they are doing over there look at the bad things they're doing or similarly look at the things that could help us make us feel better you know covid is a thing I hear that bleach could help. Let's take some bleach. You know, for example, you could really see how these things move. Um, but it's certainly not something that was born, you know, in the last few years. Unfortunately, it's been it's been a slow burner in a way. And it's just been, I suppose, the intention not, say, not necessarily being paid to it. So, for example, with conspiracy beliefs, it was often thought that only paranoid people believed in conspiracies. You know, it was the people on the out fringes of society. It wasn't me or you who could be susceptible. But then what we've learned over the last 10 years or so is that actually in the right environment, anyone could come conspiratorial. And we could explain some of the psychology a little bit later on, but anyone could be susceptible. And 
polls are, are indicating, you know, that they are potentially quite persuasive as well. You know, quite a few people believe in these conspiracies. It's not on the fringes, which coupled with us seeing the consequences in real time, for example, due to the vaccine, it has brought that attention. So it's it's it feels like they're new and they're, they're novel, but actually they've been with us since since the start of time. <laughs> I suppose, I mean, you raised something that's really interesting there, that that whole example of, you know, the, the, the kind of fake news in the 1700s. Like, the thing that struck me, and I suppose it's probably just how my mind works, is that it's it's another political misinformation drive. It's something to, to forward a, a political agenda or a policy agenda. And, it, you know, that goes back as opposed to the COVID examples or the the elections or the Brexit example. Um and then you have, I suppose, that the, the the real conspiracy theory, and I know that I'm I'm not framing that in the right way, but you know, you've got the Elvis isn't really dead, or the you know who shot JFK kind of stuff. That absolutely, before this became something that everybody was aware of or talked about, that was what we thought of as conspiracy theories. We thought of people on the fringes of society who were just a bit erratic or mm. extravagant or mm. exceptional and just thought these thoughts whereas now it's much more much more mainstream um is there more or would you be aware of is there more kind of a, a political leaning to it um than there had been kind of previously or as your example shows perhaps not that this was this was always something that was used to further an agenda it was always always used there, are, there is sort of mixed evidence some studies research studies highlight that the left is as susceptible as the right so it doesn't matter some suggest the right slightly more than the left but i think the general consensus the overall overarching kind of empirical basis is just it really just depends on what the conspiracy or misinformation content is and how it aligns with your political interests and how when you are digesting digesting content that really supports you and makes you know makes you feel feel valid in your in your beliefs, that's going to be something that you really hold on to. And definitely, of course, if we have this assumption that things are true that when we read, coupled with it making us have an emotional reaction, we then react to it. Um, interestingly, work have has demonstrated that conspiracy beliefs seem to pivot around the left and the right in America, depending on who's in office. So the election is rigged is actually a conspiracy that's been going for a very, very long time. And it just swips around depending on who's in office. Like, it is quite interesting that like, you hear political scientists who look into this sort of thing highlight that on election night, or, or rather the day after, you can really see the change in conspiracy endorsement depending on who won. So in a way, conspiracy beliefs are for losers or rather are not for winners. Because it, when you are, you know, you are thrown out of office, you're going to say, well, that's a conspiracy. Whereas if you're suddenly into office, well, it's not a conspiracy. It's, it's all part of the truth. So I think that's a really interesting example of how our motivations, how our political leanings can really govern what is happening in, in that context. Which, of course, again, it's not something new. It's been going for forever, which, you know, conspiracy beliefs just really sit alongside our other beliefs and a way it's kind of a way to manifest them but of course as i've mentioned so far the dangers of these beliefs can be quite quite erratic you know thinking back to you know the uh the riots in america where if you believe that your party hasn't got in and it's all a, a rig and there's something there's a conspiracy 
you were going to want to call out the conspirators, which, you know, when you think about it rationally in that regard, it makes sense. Like, similarly, we, for example, the conspiracies around QAnon. It's the idea that there's a paedophile ring and this has been covered up. Now, if that is true, you, you, are, yeah, you want to call out and call out what's happening and stop that. But of course, it then turns into much more abstract when the idea that there's government officials involved and Trump was trying to, you know, was Q and he was trying to, check, you know, bring out this paedophile ring. That suddenly turns into something very different to the grain of truth that we should really want to stop this sort of thing. Which, again, it's just all based around trying to keep your beliefs in, in situ, which... You know, on the one hand, it makes sense that you want to call out these conspirators, but on the other hand, it's not true. Like, believing that, for example, a pizzeria in America was part of this paedophile ring and, uh, a few years ago, and a guy went to go and save the children with a gun and was shooting in this, in this pizza restaurant, but it was just a pizza restaurant. And apparently the children was meant to be in the basement, but this, this building didn't have a basement. So it really highlights the real world dangers of misinformation and conspiracy beliefs in the sense that that person was motivated to want to go out and save the children, which I think is good, of course, but it wasn't true. And he went into a pizza restaurant and almost killed someone. And, you know, there's been different examples of obviously deaths surrounding misinformation, which really highlights why they are dangerous to me. I know, like you, you've referenced COVID there and that, you know, there was an absolute explosion and there was... You know, we heard so many different things. So the bleach example is one, the malaria tablets and, and all of those various different things. And, you know, whether it's created in a lab in the state somewhere or, you know, whether it's a, a, a an eco weapon. Um, and I just wonder, I suppose, it really highlighted how susceptible we are to misinformation or, or disinformation. And part of me can't help but think that's a, a good thing that we don't hold these views to ourselves anymore necessarily, while at the same time, the spreading of that type of information mm. is, as you say, and you know, point out mm. in several examples, really, really potentially harmful. Mm. That's interesting. Good, good. Yeah, I suppose, I wonder, did we always share this? But with the speed of the internet, it's come much more visible and quicker. So in a way, is it just on steroids in my in my think about it yes so i mean i have no evidence for that particularly but i just wondered did we still talk about these issues like if covid happened well previous previous spanish flu for example like 100 years ago i'm sure we would have talked about these you know in our peers like you know, our family but it may not have been as visible that we've been able to see a trend on Twitter of, of people talking about these things and having a YouTube, a YouTube live where someone is saying, you know, COVID's caused by 5G, let's burn down those towers. Like, and then seeing that in the comments, which therefore led potentially to people burning down towers, I wouldn't do it much more slow. And of course, back in the day as well, there was much more editorial ownership in the sense that it was the editor who may would have printed the false information or the conspiracy beliefs. Whereas today, we're all our own editor. You know, you, for example, the famous here, will be doing editing this podcast. So you are your own editor. So you could totally delete what I'm saying here and, you know, do whatever else you want to me. But potentially 100 years ago, it would be very difficult potentially to get, to get such rhetoric through the mainstream media. 
So I'm just reflecting. I wonder when we when we always talking about it. It's just not in the same quick and transparent, apparent, transparent way. Not the word transparent, more visible way, maybe the best word to to, to previously. Um, I say no data to necessarily support my assertion there, but I do definitely think that even without the internet, we would still be talking about the same things. We would still That's be really having the same suggestions that, that they've done a sinister thing, like like Spanish flu, for example, thinking there was a conspiracy involved with that, and it wasn't as it seems, is all just part of the same rhetoric, just in a slightly different context. Yeah, that's really, really interesting. And like you referenced it there, you know, social media has played a, a huge part in the spread of this misinformation and disinformation. It's really, you know, everybody, as you say, is their own editor, their own publisher. Um, and there's very little, you know, with, with some notable exceptions there of actual organizational bodies who do fact check. There's very little of that that can't then turn into just a big Twitter storm or a big mm -hmm. debate where mm -hmm. no one is really engaged with the truth anymore. It's all just the, the point scoring. Mm -hmm. um, in your view, though, are there any new risks or what could be the kind of potential future risks? for another exponential increase mm. in, in this type of misinformation spreading. Before I answer that point, I just wanted want to just like reflect and flag. I think with the internet, it's that repeat exposure to the same content that is potentially troublesome in the sense that if I was exposed to something conspiratorial right now on my phone, I, I don't believe it would change my belief immediately. But suddenly if I'm exposed to it by multiple sources and I seem to be watching the same kind of video on TikTok over and over, I think that's when it could lead to the, those attitude changes. If, of course, it then aligns with also my political beliefs even more so. So I think with the internet, it's that speed of, of, of information sharing, but also the fact that you then can be exposed to it multiple times potentially. I think it's probably the key difference is not that I necessarily believe that you're exposed to it, therefore that's it, you're done. But I think it's that gradual change and kind of you then start seeing it over and over. And you start thinking, oh, yeah, I think that's probably true, actually, because you then kind of see it repeat so many times. But I think I answer your question about potential new things. It is sort of new, but it's sort of not around the role of deep fakes. So deep fakes, of course, is... Well, it's been around for a little while, but I think it's quite more problematic in the sense that deep fakes are getting better and better. This is um, um, artificial intelligence and it's around um, fake images and videos where you may have seen some examples online. There are some silly ones online. For example, uh, I can't even think they're like, of what's his name? Oh, a famous actor. Like they're being used in different ways. And often you can, they're silly, so you can see that it's just like a computer-generated image and they're talking at you. But you can make them on your phone, for example, of, of your family singing songs and whatnot. But they're getting better and better. And there's different examples now where you wouldn't necessarily realise it was a deep fake. As in, for example, to take a real example, it could be there's a video of Donald Trump and it was a deep fake. So it means he wasn't real, but it looked really real. And it was him saying that, you know, he hadn't won the election. And no, he, he had won the election, was it? We hadn't. What was it? What was on our own? And he hadn't won it. He was saying, yes, I'm not won it. There's a conspiracy involved. I'd be very, very specific about it, which people obviously took to him actually saying those things and was used and was shared by his followers. But of course, 
it wasn't a, it was a deep fake so it was in like literally someone had just got images and put them together and had made this video say whatever that person wanted so there are different outcomes of that so for example um it could be that someone does a deep fake of someone in your family and then facetimes you and he's that family member and they're saying you know i need some money i've lost my card or whatnot and to get money like that or it could be political campaigns. So you've got a, you know, a somewhat a politician who's been deep fake saying some things that could therefore impact voters. It could be to do medical professionals, like, you know, deep fake, deep fake in, in, you know, important celebrities that do with doctors and so. So in a way, it really could be a gateway to misinformation or rather disinformation. Of course, the person receiving it doesn't realise that and. Because, as I say, it's getting better and better, and better in a way that any of us could really engage in that, it really highlights the potential vast dangers that suddenly come, come into, into play. But a warning sign is that the protective factors that help with misinformation doesn't always help with deep fakes. So, for example, we know that critical thinking abilities and di di digital literacy can help with textual misinformation. So for example, check the source, check to see, does it look fake with the images, check to see the bias in web. But some of those skills don't necessarily help with a deep fake because it looks so realistic that when you, when you watch the video, you're like, oh, like, you know, you don't realise necessarily that it is something that you should really be taken care of. So actually thinking about protective factors is much more difficult when we come to thinking about deep fakes. Like some workers highlighted that if you pre-warn people and you say some videos you may watch could be a deep fake. A deep fake is a AI video that, you know, is not real. It actually makes people more more distrusting of all videos because they just don't know. You just like, well, I don't know. Everything could be false. So I think potentially the role of deepfakes in our life and how that could be on TV could really change the game. Um, and of course, as an example of deepfakes is sometimes um, they're used in adverts. So uh, it's been shown that the ad the advertising company couldn't get that celebrity involved, or maybe the celebrity said yes, or they weren't available for filming, or whatever, whatever. But they've been using adverts to promote products, and to the audience, it just looks like you know that celebrity. Taylor Swift, example comes to my head. Taylor Swift is promoting this brand, but actually, she may not be. And of course, as I say, to actually pinpoint that is fake is very difficult. Even just think yourself, you sitting there listening now, could you tell a fake video if it was on TV right now? I don't think I could, like for how good they've, they've come. And when you think about how would you try and use some of the skills we know from detection mis misinformation and apply it to this, it certainly is would be thinking, oh yeah, actually that's much more challenging. Um, and I said the worry is because it's quite much more easy to, to make these videos. Um, I, I wonder where we will be in a few years' time in regards to this sort of content. That's really interesting, that whole area of, of deep fake, because absolutely when I think around kind of disinformation, you know, that that intentional spreading of, of false and, and dangerous information, I always think of it coming from someone I don't particularly like. Whereas mm -hmm. if you're watching someone that you respect on a video, 
speaking to you, you're more likely to be influenced by them. You're more likely because you've already got this kind of, you know, mental database of things you agree on. So if they're saying something that is slightly, and it doesn't have to be hugely controversial, but just slightly moving in a different direction, you're more likely, as opposed to absorb it and to, to take it on. That's that's really. And then, of course, misinformation can be really sticky. Someone you've heard it once from a source that you believe, that then potentially comes the way of thinking. Like it could be really difficult to then try and debunk it potentially, and you may not even be aware that you've been exposed to it to realise that you should be debunked on it. It can't be messy in that way. So, like, and it could be used in other 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 domains. So, for example, during war, you can imagine a deep fake video being made of the president or of another party saying some things about the other group or that war or whatever, and be used in that very politically motivated way. And, you know, these things could easily be shared online, a, t- a short TikTok video, for example, of that deep fake, of that celebrity, of that political figure, saying just a couple of things that then could get some traction. And suddenly you then got the fact checkers on the back foot trying to like, discredit it, to be like, no, it's, that's not real. That's not real because uh, it, it's, we, we just know it's not. <laughs> we fe- we, that's the person and they said it's not them. But it, in the moment when you're re- watching it on your phone, it will look like them. It will sound like them. It will appear like them. And they could be saying things that support your political alignment. So I think I think that's really difficult to kind of untangle. Um, like, to, to think of solutions to how we help with that, I think is a very timely question. Um, because as I say, just some of the, the basic things we normally do, it, it's kind of hard to try and put those in, into place as well. Um, yeah, so it's a difficult one. So I've only got an answer for how we help with it, but I think it's definitely one to watch and one that people may not have necessarily thought about. Because, of course, like for example, I've got like the face tune that gets called on my phone. Like, you know, you put it on family pictures and you make them sing along to Beyonce. It's hilarious. But, of course, there's there's wider, sinister um, implications. And as I say, it's getting better and better. Better and better each day. And can I come back to the the... the... I suppose that my introduction to you, um, the piece of research around measuring adolescents' beliefs and conspiracy theories. Um, can you give me a, a bit of detail on that? Because I genuinely, I read the paper and I found it fascinating. I found it fascinating that someone would think to target this particular age group and that someone would have the presence of mind to do that. Because when you look at the results, they're just incredible. So can you, I suppose, Talk to me a bit more about that. Can you give me some detail about how it came about, uh, why you concentrated on this particular age cohort, and what the, the findings were? So pretty much all what I've talked about for the last however long, well, I'm not sure how long we've been talking about, depending on the editors, could be could be five minutes, who knows? Any <laughs> <laughs> editorial power over there. Um, it's all based in adults, pretty much, from what I've said. But of course, young people, don't live in a vacuum. They digest the same content that we do in a way, probably in a different way, for example, like different platforms that you've probably never heard of, but like you digest it in a different way. So it's, we were really mindful that we know a lot about conspiracy beliefs in particular in adults, but actually we know nothing at all about young people. Now we can, we can make assumptions that they will also be having these beliefs and these worldviews as they do, you know, politics and all a range of different things. 
Like when you step back, and maybe your listeners are older, like like me, but you step back in your teenage years, you are doing stuff. Like you have beliefs, you have ideas, you have passions. So we want we want to okay, what 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 role does conspiracy beliefs play for them? But a, a sticking point we had was that often lots of the measures, lots of the questionnaires were very adult focused. So they had words that were just complicated. They had events that unfortunately the kids would never have heard of. <laughs> unfortunately, um, they had topics that were maybe just a bit sensitive, things that you wouldn't necessarily want to ask, for example, a 12-year-old about. So we asked our first step was to work with some teachers to look at all the questions that exist so far that measure belief in conspiracies and see which ones could be suitable for a younger audience. And then across different different research studies, working with children as well, we developed this nine item questionnaire that measures a belief in conspiracies for younger populations. So it, it taps that concept of believing that others are conspiring, that there's a hidden agenda, that secret groups control our events, beliefs that we know adults have, so we wouldn't debate young people. And then we also, therefore, using this measure, found that age 14 seems to be a, a time when conspiracy beliefs start to develop. So, and it kind of moves up throughout the ages a little bit, and then kind of um, age 18, it kind of, um, uh, what's the word, stabilises, and then in, in, into adulthood. But age 14 seems to be that time when it kind of has a bit of an uptick. So age 14 is around year 10 in the UK. I'm not sure how, how it conspires elsewhere, but it's where it, um, it's the start of GCSEs. But age 14 is, so a question that we had therefore after this was, well, why age 14? And unfortunately our research at that time couldn't necessarily answer why age 14. So we're still, it's still an open question. But things that we have theorized about is age 14 is the time that, you're allowed to get social media legally, 13, 14, depends on the platform, 13, 14. Uh, at that age, people rely more on their friends rather than their family for their belief systems because potentially trying to think about the social group, the social norms potentially, so looking towards others. And also interestingly at that time, young people in other research has reported that they feel more anxious because they fit, they're relying less on their emotional regulation. So it seems to be in some, some longitudinal work that they feel more anxious and less, they, they, they're, they're um, regulating their emotions less around 18, 13, 14. And then at 16, they start to regulate more and then anxiety comes down. So I was like, oh, how interesting. That really kind of mirrors what we kind of saw that age 14, where potentially they are on social media, they're feeling more anxious, they're, you know, they're not regulating their emotions. Suddenly, they're, they're coming a bit more conspiratorial, that they are trying to seek answers to potential world problems, which indeed certainly makes sense with that development of trend. As I say, caveat again, we don't know for certain. We know that these beliefs seem to form around that point. And that's really interesting, but we don't necessarily know why. And those explanations certainly make sense to me, but it would be really good to really understand. And then understand also around the protective factors. So, of course, you know, digital literacy, critical thinking, we know can be an important uh, protective factor or risk factor in adults. But is it similar in, in young people? So, for example... Uh, seeing people today, they grew up. They grew up on social media, or growing up on social media. So, does that offer 
advantage or disadvantage because they their full their or their full lives online. And you know, if, the, if there was more emphasis on digital literacy in schools, would we see such an uptick with conspiracy beliefs? It's kind of it's hard to really know at this point. But nonetheless, really interesting to focus on this age group and you know think about well, yeah, they're not in a vacuum. They digest the content we do, so they probably will be impacted as we do. And I suppose with, without the, the life experience to give in that kind of critical thinking as well, to be able to look and say, well, you know, I know certain things to be true and they they don't match with that, that, you know, you are much more susceptible, I suppose. Was there any difference or did you notice any difference um, between boys and girls? You know, just even thinking about developmentally, hormonally, all of those kind of, you know, maturity wise, was there any difference did you notice? Not that I can recall, no. I'm sure it was equal between. Yeah, it was equal, yeah, no difference between. Wow. Um, at least at that point, and all the stuff that we measured. Um, I like the point around the, the experience. And that's really interesting in that potentially you could be digesting information for the, for the very first time, which could therefore really cloud and become your 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 viewpoints. So remember, and actually when we say think more critically, potentially someone who's who is new to this would be like, well, I, how? Because I, don't, I have no prior knowledge on this. So, uh, like, that could be really interesting to think, even think about how that pathway works in that in that age group with that limited experience. When we're saying focus on the truth, or, or thinking well, what is the truth, because you're still working out what the truth is in your mind and your your belief systems, and maybe that age has their political political viewpoints really developed, and are they, you know, thinking, there's a whole load of questions and interesting things to learn. Um, but at least I say back for us, it was really shining a light on actually, no, you know, we're focusing on adults here, but actually young people will be adults soon. Well, let's understand what's happening in, in that trend. And actually, it's, something is happening and it is worthy of investigation. Yeah, I mean, like my, my own children are, are much younger than that. But certainly the first thing that they're told about something is the true thing you know, trying to unravel something can be quite challenging, even with that younger age bracket, because they're so, this is the truth. This is what I was told. There is no, you know, I, you can't tell me anything different. And you try to get like, I am evidence-based all the time. I'm sitting and trying to dissect things with yeah. these children. Um, because it, it is, it's it's so influential, that first hit of whatever mm. the information piece is. And if it interests them, mm. it just, it goes into the kind of the, you know, almost the long-term memory immediately. Mm. Um, well, that's really important, I think. And I think actually, I am obviously all on board with digital literacy. I think that's, you know, I'm actually on board with it. But the word but is when do you know when to actually use those skills? So as, as you're kind of saying that, like when you learn something for the first time and you then are maybe like exposed to it multiple times, you know, maybe different different ways of the same argument. When did you have that moment to stop and go, right, I'm actually going to fact check this? Because with digital literacy and fact checking, it's sometimes you may naively assume me that you do it all the time. But when you're scrolling on TikTok, I do not fact check every video that I consume. And you're just reflecting, your listeners reflect now, when would you fact check? I suppose, would it be when you feel like there's something important? When you feel like, 
you're going to make a decision with this? Uh, for example, could it be that you fact check when you're about to share it? Like, is that the point? But of course, just because you sh don't share it doesn't mean that you haven't digested it. So someone could still be scrolling and digesting the content, but then not actually sharing it. So that sharing is when they then do the fact checking. Do you know what I mean? It's that really kind of thinking of, of actually practicality of when do you do it with the with the assumption that this is you, know, you just can't do it all the time. You just like I, maybe that's the bad thing to say out loud. Like you should maybe you should be, but I certainly would not. Like when you're having your leisure time scrolling through TikTok or Twitter or whatever platform that will that be invented tomorrow, like. You just haven't got the ability to do that. Do you, do you know what I mean? So I'm, I want to answer for when that happens, but just potentially that, that repeat exposure could still be really detrimental. So we think, well, how do you then therefore try and navigate that? Is it around skill set building of here's what misinformation and a conspiracy belief is? Here are Here's what makes a conspiracy belief. So, for example, um, some colleagues, it's actually the same colleagues I did, I did the work, the, the, um, the, young, the young people work with. We developed what we called calling the conspiracy kitchen, where it's an exhibit where people, you know, people, adults can be invited to our kitchen. And you find that we then have the three different key ingredients that make a conspiracy. Either you have the protagonist, you have an action and you have why they did it. So we have people pick out, ironically, in person it's fruit, pick out three bits of fruit, and then you then think about, okay, well, does this make a, a conspiracy? So, for example, you could have some protagonists that make sense, such as, you know, government, or you could have things such as the lollipop man. You could have the uh, action, such as, you know, covering something up to do with vaccines, or it could be a simpler thing of, Turning on, the, turning on the light, and then, 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 then the motive being to for self interest, for profit, or just have some fun, for example. So then, we have like about thirty in each category, and you can get a mixture. So, for example, saying the government is covering things, covering things up to have some fun, doesn't make sense. Like, you know, that doesn't make sense. Whereas, if you have the government is covering things up for for, for profit, or you like, oh. That kind of makes sense. So is it being aware of, of, for example, the key ingredients to spot a conspiracy so that when you are just digesting, you then be like, oh, that is a, that's a conspiracy. I mean, whether you therefore believe it or not is a different question, but you then think, oh, that's a conspiracy. And then is that the pausing and the stopping? And that's you then being critical. Um, if it, just to flag your listeners, if you want to try the conspiracy kitchen, um, my colleague Karen Douglas turned this into a conspiracy generator on her website. So if you were to Google conspiracy generator, um, University of Kent, Karen Douglas, any of those words, you will appear on, on Google. Uh, so you can actually try it yourself. And actually it has like quite fun button that you can really get kind of an interesting um mix of things um so uh in some um talks I, that i've given i demonstrate the, the the kitchen basically and so i've sat there on that generator on her website pressing the buttons over and over and over trying to make the perfect conspiracy for my point and it's difficult it took me like a good half an hour of different variations and like you get kind of close like almost there ah 
no, it's not to make them happy or to grow trees. I want to do something sinister, which I think for me also underlines the point that to get that perfect conspiracy, it's really difficult. You can have the key ingredients of a, of a protagonist, an action and a motive, but it just doesn't make sense. So actually for us to have conspiracies that exist in the online world and that are, are viral, actually is quite a feat in, in itself to actually get something that actually works. And I suspect that there are many, 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 many failed attempts of a conspiracy that's been tweeted that just doesn't make sense. Um, so, yeah, so yeah, the conspiracy generator. So anyway, the point was that we, that we grabbed on about is, could that be a way to help people digest the content? So it's assuming that you're not going to fact check everything, but by having some of the basics of this is what a conspiracy is, could that offer some protection? Um, I've literally only thought of that idea right now, so I have no idea if it'll work. Um, like literally, I've never thought about it properly in that way until I'm just rambling now. But it kind of makes sense, right? <laughs> I mean, I'll certainly I'll look Karen Douglas's conspiracy generator up, and I will link it to our our podcast so that oh, our yeah, listeners yeah. can can have a go. Um, but I suppose in addition to those three ingredients, when we think of things like COVID or the U.S. presidential elections or Brexit, you know, those big big conspiracy things. There's also been the fear element. There's also been kind of a an external kind of environmental piece. So, you know, whether it's a, a fear of migrants or it's a fear of Mexicans or it's a fear of, you know, what COVID can or can't do to us, where it's coming from, and our loss of control of it all. Um, that plays its part, I presume, in in how quickly these things are disseminated, because you've got you've almost got a ready-made audience for it. Absolutely. That's why we always say conspiracy beliefs thrive during moments of crisis, because of all those points you've actually said, fear, trying to understand, it meeting your, your goals, it all kind of fits that perfect, perfect mix. And that's why we're all potentially susceptible, potentially susceptible, because... You know, we may all feel anxious in a certain moment. We may all feel have a moment where we try and seek answers to very complex problems that we therefore may be exposed to information that promises to make us feel better. In the long run, it does not. So other thing we always say is that conspiracy beliefs are appealing but not satisfying. Because if you imagine you feel anxious about COVID, you suddenly believe it's all part of a conspiracy. Well, that doesn't make you feel any better because you then believe it's part of a conspiracy, which therefore, you know, instills this trust in others. It makes you think, well, what else have they done? They've been the government or the doctors or whatever. And suddenly it spares into this whole belief system where, you know, it could have a de- you know have an impact on you, yourself, your self-esteem, your well-being, never mind how you interact. So, you know, to do with vaccines or, or climate change or indeed extremism where you want to call out those conspirators. And, you know, those conspirators could be the government, but it could also be doctors and nurses. It can be perceived to be different groups of people from, you know, Jewish people, for example. So actually, the consequences can be quite wide reaching. And whilst it may have started from the point of you trying to understand the world, it actually suddenly has these repercussions. But of course, if you think about people who maybe you know who believe in conspiracies, it never, in my experience, is about, about one event. Often it's about multiple things. But of course, all of these things overlap. 
And, you know, if you are distrusting of the government in this regard, well, you've probably got to distrust him in other ways as well. So it's never just an isolated, isolated event. So often when we think, I think about um, trying to address belief in conspiracies, it's thinking about the skill sets and the emotions and the things around the belief, not the belief itself. Because maybe if you try and debunk that particular thing that they believe, there's, there's loads of other dangling fruit that will also be potentially left, left isolated. So for me, it is around addressing those needs and the skill sets. And that's why I, do, I definitely do think critical thinking plays a role. But potentially it's also thinking about, well, how is it used and the implications of it? And maybe it's that in, in, in addition to other skill sets. I imagine it's quite a complex um, story when we think around how we actually try and address these things. And of course, the, the implications, you know, and, and policies, whilst I really, really value critical thinking and, did, did, you know, all these, all these different things that are happening in schools, I think it's trying to think, well, it may not solve the problem because of all the other things that are happening around it. And that brings me very nicely to my very last question. You know, what can policymakers do within that very limited context that you, you describe? You know, there are certain things that we can concrete things that I'm sure we can do and you know like examples that are out there that, that struck me were Finland for example um, and their educational program that they have in schools around you know disinformation and misinformation and, and critical thinking really is, is what they're they're talking about mm -hmm. um, but you know bearing in mind as you say there is that those other kind of environmental aspects of it what can policymakers who want to address this what can they do I think the first is having a spotlight on the issue. I think is a very good thing, which of course, as we start back start the start of the podcast, we say about COVID. That is one good thing, maybe, of COVID is that the spotlight is on this area, which has always been there. So it's nice that it's kind of been acknowledged. And I do really value, particularly in the UK, the work around different working groups in the government. Think around digital literacy and how we embed that in schools, but also the wider community, which, as I say, I'm really on board with it. I'm on board with it. And I think that should be part of our curriculum. Of course, it's difficult to think about where it may fit, because, of course, in the UK context in particular, there's lots of things in there already. So what potentially might need to change or be removed to try and build this in, which I think is certainly a challenge. But I think overall, I think it's a good initiative. But then, of course, it's thinking about the wider context and that that potentially having those skill sets to think to th how to evaluate evidence may not protect you against some of these harmful beliefs. And I suppose trying to take more of a perspective uh, view and think, well, OK, what else can we do alongside this? Such as, you know, trying to impair people in schools, really highlighting how we can impair young people in their everyday in their everyday today in society more broadly, how we think about how, how young people may think about their emotions and navigate their emotions, how focusing on maybe also thinking about what misinformation is broadly and conspiracy beliefs broadly as a way to highlight how these skills can be used in, in the population. And as we know with Finland, which obviously has had digital literacy as part of their, their schooling for, for a long time, has obviously had many successes with regards to you know, thinking clearly and, and the metrics with regards, with regards to critical thinking. But what I found interesting was I found a paper that highlighted that people that people in Finland 
still obviously have belief in conspiracies. And the paper highlighted how these beliefs were connected to um, COVID-19 behaviours. So, for example, that vaccination and whatnot. So for me, I did think, damn, like even with a skill set or the skills that schools that have such an emphasis on this, these beliefs still seem to be there, thriving, and they're still linked with probably health concerns, which again, for me, really highlighted, well, actually, it really highlights it's not just the one solution that, you know, I may would have assumed naively that if these skill sets were the, were, the, were the, you know, the bread and all, everything there, we shouldn't really find such these beliefs and these links still existing. We should find them, you know, either null or very small, but actually that didn't seem to be the case. So for me, it highlights, yes, okay, we need these skill sets, but also something else, that third concept of addressing our psychology as well and making people both critical, but also empowered in society. But of course, the question really was around, what can policymakers do? Which I think actually is really challenging, definitely for a psychologist who always tried to think about communicating my research in a more accessible way with ideally tangible things that people can do. But I suppose when we're still learning about what can reduce belief in conspiracies, like for example, even during this conversation, I had an idea of what could potentially try and help. It feels very junior or early to try and think about what can actually we do to try and combat this? So part of me wonders, is it also about gaining more evidence to try and therefore help policymakers? Thinking, you know, does critical thinking abilities and digital literacy protect against conspiracy beliefs and misinformation? Do we, is it worth knowing that, therefore to help, you know, the emphasis with um, public policy that, of course, it's never, I don't want to stop, of course, the idea around digital literacy. I think that's something we need to push forward. But I suppose it's thinking about it's more complicated than that. And are there things that we can do alongside it that could lead to kind of stronger wins? Um, if any of that makes sense. It certainly does. Um, and with that, I'm going to thank you so, so much. You have been incredibly interesting. Um, loads of food for thought there. Lots to... <laughs> To continue to work on I think in this space so thank you so much Daniel thank you it's been an absolute pleasure thank you and hope it was useful to those who are listening thank you thank you so much for listening if you want to know more about Daniel and his work you can check out his website www.daniel that's d-a-n-i-e-l jolly j-o-l-l-e-y all one word dot co dot uk I'll also be putting some links into the blurb for Podbean that will be available on our website as well so you can check out some of the interesting projects he and his colleagues are working on. Of course, if you want to get in touch to suggest some topics or some people that we might present on our podcast, please do let us know at secretary at socialjustice.ie. And until next time, stay safe.